On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Alf Wren. I try to keep an, uh, quite an open mind, so I often, uh, I still kind of keep in touch with what HBR is writing and uh, what the the friends in Stanford are doing. But I also do think that for a person who works with uh, innovation and uh, creativity, it's also important to kind of look up stuff that you're not really. Alf. Uh, when uh, for anybody who might have missed part one, um, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about uh, your career and the book that's coming out? Just a quick quick overview for somebody who missed part one. Yeah. Uh, well, my name is Alfred. I'm an academic uh, in innovation. I'm a professor of innovation design and management, and uh, I've often worked kind of in that in between space between innovation and criticism or critique. So so I work a lot with uh, criticizing simple ideas about innovation and and trying to kind of develop innovation thinking. And that's kind of the foundation of a book I'm doing now called uh, Innovation for the Fatigued. Uh, It's about how we can make our cultures more attuned to deep creativity and not just shallow such. And and I'm really interested, especially in a little bit of what what we talked about in this theme of of the first um, episode about listening to the folks who are actually doing the work instead of thinking it's only Mm -hmm. executives who can have good ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. You mentioned that uh, Tata was an organization that was good at this. Do you know any specifics or any stories? Uh, Well, Tata has uh, obviously what they've done is that uh, Tata is a big conglomerate, so they're doing a lot of different things. But uh, what they were early on in doing was that they were really trying to understand their end users and also be very inclusive about their end users. So uh, so when they were kind of t- talking about developing, for instance, the, the Tata car, which was supposed to be the cheapest ever, uh, they actually went to uh, people in the organization that came from what in India would be considered kind of uh, less privileged backgrounds, and and really took them serious and started asking. So okay, so do you need? Would you need this? Uh, is this a good way to go? So even in a society so still afflicted by notions of hierarchy and class, uh, they understood that having this diversity in the organization is is a strength, and it's a strength that can be used strategically. And I think that there's an important lesson there for. Too often, I mean, even look at this conversation. It's two kind of white guys from a from a decent kind of backgrounds and with uh, with kind of fine educations and all that. I mean, too e- easily our conversation can be just about people like us. But there's so much more to life. I mean, there's so many more people we could talk to, uh, engage with people from different backgrounds. Obviously, different ethnicities, differences in gender, or even gen- the gender non-binary. And I think that this richness of ideas, this richness of what uh, Clay Shirky has called the cognitive surplus, we still have so much mining to do there and still so many great innovations we can create if we truly kind of connect with this. Yeah. And, and who, is the, who is the organization in China that you had mentioned? 
that's Haier. They're one of the biggest makers of whitewares in China. They make, uh, for instance, fridges and the, and the likes, washing machines. Hmm. And they are in a kind of an almost constant state of uh, reimagining their business. And uh, the CEO of Haier, uh, a man whose name unfortunately escapes me now because I even though I've stayed in China for some time, I still struggle with uh, remembering Chinese names. I difficulty enough with my kids. Um, he is very adamant on every person in the organization being empowered to actually push ideas forward, uh, that people can actually spend money to test out ideas. They're a very experiment-driven culture. And as a result, have, have grown tremendously and made the owner a very, very rich man. Can, can we talk about this for a second? Because in speaking about innovation, um, it's mm -hmm. very easy for, for managers or other leaders to spout off, you know, we want people to take more risks. And if you're not failing mm -hmm. at something every month here, you're not doing mm -hmm. your job. But then by giving people a lack of boundaries, uh, folks don't know how far they can push things. And and then you see mm -hmm. other folks like in the hospitality industry, some of the high-end hotels will say something like, you can make a decision in favor of any guest up to $100 without talking to anybody mm -hmm. in management. And they've given them some boundaries to know where the left and right limits are because, you know, small failures are great if you learn. Big failures mm -hmm. are not great, right? If you're, yeah. And so <laughs> helping people know, like, what what is the appropriate amount of experimentation and giving people some some examples to base their choices off instead of saying, hey, it's a wild open field, go for the blank canvas. Hmm. You know, that's scary. It is scary, but I mean, I think often uh, the problem is even deeper than, than you can outline. Mm. Uh, I completely agree with you that the best case scenario is one where pe everyone would know just how much they can use, uh, where three people can come together and combine, in a sense, their this kind of resource usage and create something greater. But what I run into quite often uh, is that you'll have a CEO who goes, I want my people to be risk takers. And then you turn around and realize he's just fired two people for taking risks. And uh, that kind of behavior is far more prevalent than we, we often like to talk about, where the top management of an organization might sing innovation's praises, but actually then behave in ways that completely contradict this and are very strict about KPIs and seemingly you can do whatever you want as long as it's immediately successful and doesn't take any time either. And, I mean, it's just like if you'd have a parent like that who says, yes, you're free to do whatever you wish, but if you come five minutes after uh, the time I allotted for you, I will beat you up. You wouldn't become a very freewheeling kid, would you? You'd become a very scared kid. Uh, you'd become kind of traumatized by what your parent just said to you because it doesn't seem to make sense. It's, it is schizophrenic. Yeah, so knowing that leaders aren't doing that intentionally, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yet, you know, kind of the like, I can't hear what you said over the thunder of your actions type of thing definitely mm -hmm. yeah. takes over. So again, um, as you think about any of us who want to work on ourselves to to audit ourselves and see if our actions line up with our words mm -hmm. or things like this, any any thoughts, any advice? This is, and I'm, I'm not the first, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the last people who, who speaks the praises often of innovation consultants, because having done this for quite a while, I've seen so many bad ones. 
But this is, of course, one of the points where an innovation consultant actually can do a lot of good, not by delivering this is what you should do to innovate, but rather as being the, the guy who speaks truth to power or the gal who speaks truth to power and the person who can say, yeah, you do know you're the problem. And that, of course, takes guts from the consultant's side because that might mean that the consultant gets fired. Um, but I've had the honor and, and scary situation of, of telling, for instance, the, a big chemical company CEO and saying, well, I can identify your company's problem in innovation culture. It's you. It's all you. Uh, you you create this notion of innovation and then you basically scare everyone into submission and wonder what went wrong. He didn't take it well. Uh, I got screamed. <laughs> I got screamed at a lot, uh, but uh, the benefit of being an academic and a full-time one at that is that I didn't need his money really. So I said, well, you can you cannot pay me. I'm fine. I'm still going to be able to feed my kids. Uh, you wanted me to tell the truth, and there's the truth. If you don't like that, that's not really my problem. Uh, that's more your problem. And um, we, we got over that hump. He, he kind of realized what I was saying, and, and we actually got some, some positive change going. But sometimes that's what you need. You, d you don't need one more innovation model or business model canvas. You need somebody to go in and say, listen, it, it's a culture thing. It's a language thing. Uh, sometimes it's even uh, a, a clear kind of leadership issue at the top. Well, this is what I want to talk about. Let's take a quick um, break, hear from our sponsor, and then I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So, Alf, so before the sponsor break here, you talked about how it's not typically a problem of people don't have enough innovation tools, that it has much more to do with the culture and how things are done around here. Um, mm -hmm. When you think about the biggest levers or, or the first things leaders can do um, to work on that culture, because, you know, culture is another... If innovation is a buzzword, culture is at least as big a buzzword, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but when you have observed folks actually make progress in in having the kind of culture that is more likely to invite everybody to bring their brain to work instead of mm -hmm. just the executives who think they're the ones who are supposed to have the good ideas and and reset mm -hmm. that tone and, and create new habits, or who who what what's an organization that to you has done it well, or what's what's any thoughts you have about this? Well. It's to begin with, I, I think it needs to be said that to build a strong innovation culture takes a very long time. You couldn't be one of the, uh, the great companies that have managed because they're just built on the strong innovation culture from the start. Uh, so I was talking uh, to the CEO of Pixar, uh, who's a great guy and um, runs an organization where there is really freedom for everyone to kind of pitch in and, and talk that. But I, I, I also pointed out to him that, well, when you grow from that, it's easier than when you have an actually problematic organization you try to kind of reinvent. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think one of the my most uh, kind of happiest times I've actually had uh, was working with a company, a bank actually, or a financial institution, a financial warehouse almost, uh, that really struggled uh, with the fact that a lot of people there kind of showed innovation fatigue and particularly very few of the women wanted to participate. And when we started working on this, I kind of said that, well, actually, where, where you go wrong, it's not really even something you say, it's all your micro behaviors. 
because I'd have been observing them in meetings, particularly in innovation pitch meetings. And, and a lot of what I saw was them kind of uh, people squirming in chairs, people checking out Facebook while other people were pitching ideas, people yawning completely unshamedly uh, when some junior person was raising an issue. And I said, this is your problem. It's, it's not that uh, you're, you're being mean or you don't allocate enough resources. It's that you yawn at that young kid who actually was trying to, to, to speak to you. And they, again, got a little miffed because they, oh, well, yeah, I'm not allowed to yawn if I'm tired. I said, you're allowed to yawn, but you're also allowed to think about how little things like the way you behave in a meeting is actually constitutive of how culture works. And uh, we ran this little exercise in, in which people got to come, um, we put the top executive team behind a screen so they couldn't see who was talking. And people actually came in and told stories about times they felt uh, disrespected or, or patronized or put down in the organization. And it wasn't the most pleasant exercise I've run because it, it got it got heavy. I mean, you the top executives team sit there and literally one of them almost started crying because it, it was hard to hear this stuff. But it was also cleansing. I mean, they understood that there was a deep and severe problem in their culture and that that was killing ideas on a weekly basis. Uh, and when you realize the problem, and this is kind of old AA material, uh, when, when you understand the problem, you can start to work on the problem. Uh, when you realize this is where we have to work from, this is where we have to start building and rebuilding from, then it's much easier than to get speed from stuff like, for instance, new innovation models or a new process and the likes, because you're aware and you're reflective about what's going on. I love that story. Can, can we break it down just a little bit? So the folks mm -hmm. who were sharing this, you mm -hmm. know, stories of when they've been disrespected, they mm -hmm. knew that there were executives behind the screen, yes. but they didn't know who? They knew there were executives, and uh, I told them that uh, there were several of the top executives. Actually, most of the team was there. Uh, but I also had uh, made sure that... Uh, uh, the most most of the people actually telling these stories were so low down in the hierarchy that there was no way anyone in the executive team would uh, recognize their voices, particularly not behind a screen. We are not at that good at recognizing voices, we human beings. Uh, and I'd also had a commitment from the top executive team that no retributive action would be taken. So so it was a controlled process. Uh, but they were basically speaking to me. They kind of knew somebody else was behind the screen. Uh, but uh, I'm by keeping kind of eye contact with me and my me asking questions. They very quickly it became basically a conversation between me and them, with the executive team just as kind of quiet listeners in the background. And and what industry was this? Finance or That's right. it was, it, yeah, banking. Uh, and was that in uh, North America or over in Europe or? That this was this was in Europe. It was actually in the Nordics. Uh, it was um, a delightful bank with fearsome lawyers, which I will not name. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, well, but but I, but I like yeah. Do ask. I mean, what's fascinating about that to me is this idea of um, the the humanness of that, mm -hmm. right? When people can, when people can hear such specifics, um, the idea of you know 
trying to hold on to your blind spot about it becomes much more difficult with that level of direct human interaction, right? And also, just as you said, culture can be such a buzzword. Anyone can say that, yes, we have an encouraging culture where uh, people, it's people first. But then when you hear about this girl kind of explain that she, she felt invisible or, or she felt humiliated when, when she was trying to kind of uh, to come with a suggestion for an innovation project and everyone started laughing at her. And then you realize, oh, shit, pardon my French, uh, we're an organization which literally laughs at underlings when they try to help. It's, that kind of really hits home for some people. Yeah. And um, do you know anything about after that session, any steps they took or, or anything that changed? I'm still in touch with them from time to time. Uh, they have developed their culture uh, considerably. Uh, they admit openly that, well, they are still a bank and they're still relatively traditional and uh, uh, they could do better, but, um, but they're working on it. And I always say to clients that don't expect uh, to become Apple or, or any other of these hailed super companies in an instant. Uh, it's a long journey. It's uh, just like it's a long journey for us humans to kind of try to develop and understand why we're put on this earth. It's a long journey for a culture to, to go from being so-so to, to be truly great. And you should allow uh, for the organization, too, to take time to grow and to become better. Yeah, I love it. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Um, I think there's a lot in that for the rest of us to maybe consider about our own organizations. Um, well, I, I liked the way we ended the first episode so much. I, I think I want to do a repeat with, with our remaining time here. I want to hear, I want to hear some more of the, the folks that you think are some of the smartest thinkers out there or the people that you're really enjoying being influenced by. Well, I, I try to keep an, uh, quite an open mind. So I often, uh, I still kind of keep in touch with what HBR is writing and uh, what the, the friends in Stanford are doing. But I also do think that for a person who works with uh, innovation and uh, creativity, it's also important to kind of look up stuff that you're not really, uh, you don't understand as well. So, so for instance, uh, right now I'm reading uh, on childhood Quite a lot I'm reading on on how uh, childhood has been understood over the ages and um, over times. Uh, and a I any just particular authors or anybody you'd recommend there? Uh, well, they, uh, uh, there is Lydia Martins is uh, a, a young scholar who just came out with a great book on childhood and Martin uh, and markets, uh, which uh, very academic, but which I truly uh, truly enjoyed. Uh, and then uh, there is. Uh, a great new book on strategy, which I think everyone with an interest in, in business uh, should be reading. And it's not strategy in corporate strategy, but it's on grand strategy. And that's John Lewis Gaddis's book, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Really one of those deep dives into what strategy has meant through the ages and uh, how uh, presidents and kings have deployed strategic thinking. And what's Sometimes that one it's called On Grand Strategy. Okay. And um, John Lewis Gaddis came out on Penguin Press uh, this year. And it's one of those deep dives where you realize that even though you worked with corporate uh, strategy for quite a number of years, there's still so much to learn and there's still so many to learn from. 
I love it. Uh, we got time for maybe two more. Oh, uh, I'm one of my personal things that I always do to try to keep um, uh, keep uh, intellectually alive is I also always read books that really don't connect to either business or strategy or anything. Just freely, what I call free reading. And uh, one of the things right now is I read a lot of cookbooks. Um, that might seem odd, but I've always been interested in, in cuisine and the likes. And uh, there is a, a cookbook by a, a rap star called Action Bronson, a very curious rap star who's uh, Albanian-American and uh, also actually a trained chef. And I'm not sure I can say the uh, name uh, on on your podcast, okay. but it would uh, the cleaned up version would be heck that's delicious. Okay. Uh, and I truly like reading when people are innovative in their space, be that space rap music or food or sports or whatever, because I think that as business folks, uh, we really need to to extend our minds uh, far beyond uh, just the business world. And sometimes the the best input we can have to to help our clients or to teach our students is to read about food, to read about uh, history, uh, or just to read fiction. Great fiction can teach you a tremendous amount uh, about creative thinking and innovation. Yeah. Um... Are you familiar with Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From? I am. I actually uh, reviewed that at one point. Okay. It's a, it's a very fun book and uh, really got me thinking about frogs. Uh, he, he mentions frogs somewhere, and I, I remember writing that, up a little thing about... Uh, is that the frog uh, hearts where they connected the vagus nerve through the saline solution, maybe? Yeah, yeah. But then I started thinking about uh, how frogs uh, live and die, and uh, and kind of that as a metaphor for ideas and uh, uh, and how we, we kind of approach ideas in organizations. But frankly, I can't even remember what my point was with that little text. I just remember he got me thinking about frogs. <laughs> you know, it really influenced this show so much, his idea of liquid networks. And, mm -hmm. you know, like like today on the show, as soon as you and I are done here, we're going to have the uh, the head of a Formula One team who's racing the, in the Formula E, the all-electric race cars, mm -hmm. who yep. used to be a head designer for McLaren. And, um, uh -huh. you know, this idea of of the show specifically like you know, musicians and filmmakers and, and then people from the nonprofit space and PhDs like yourself and authors and, and trying mm -hmm. to almost like invent my own liquid network of by having such different people on the show, trying to see, you know, who's got an idea, who's got a conception that could be adapted to my world. And, uh, yeah. so, uh, it's interesting to hear the way that you approach it and kind of makes me want to look up that cookbook. I have a I have a, a friend, uh, a Swedish, uh, sometime rock star, sometimes podcaster, Navid Modiri. Uh, he he runs a podcast uh, solely around inviting people he disagrees with, and it sounds like the most combative podcast ever. But it's actually rather sweet because he doesn't invite them to yell at them, but instead he invites them to truly try to understand why they do what they do and think what they think. And uh, I listened to that at times and uh, listened to this uh, man whom I know is one of the most hardcore anti-racists in the world, uh, who has a, a he's, has an Iranian background, uh, and him calmly and in an understanding fashion talked to a neo-Nazi. 
um, it, it kind of uh, makes you think about what creativity can truly be when we, we try to be respectful and try to be open-minded. That's amazing. And what's that show called? Uh, it's actually in Swedish only, I'm, uh, I'm uh. afraid. So, uh, so I don't think you'll uh, benefit, but Navid Modiri is a nice guy to check up regardless. Okay. Um, that's, uh, that's super interesting. Well, listen, um, so besides people going to your website, which is alfrehn.com, where, where else is good places for people to connect with you or find your books? Or Well, uh, the website's good. You can also hook me up on, on Twitter uh, and Instagram. Uh, I think I have the maximum amount of uh, friends I can have on Facebook, so that can be a little tricky, and I mainly use that to gab with uh, my friends, often in Finnish or Swedish. But uh, Twitter, where it's at sign A-L-F-R-E-H-N, or Instagram, where it's the exact same thing, are, are both great avenues where I'm sh- certain to put up far more b- pictures of my book than anyone will ever want to see. <laughs> when, when is it supposed to come out, the new one? Uh, well, uh, now I'm actually slightly delayed. I should send in the final manuscript at the end of this week. And I still think that the publisher is still hoping for an April release. Okay. Well, you'll have to let us know and we'll send an email out to people on the list and they can see it then. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for making time for this. It's been my pleasure. Okay, bye now. Bye. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.